Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. Also, as it's the Australian Ditmar Awards nomination period, we'd invite those of you who can and who love TISF to nominate the TISF podcast to be shortlisted in this year's Ditmar Awards in the Best Achievement category. Nominations close on 14 March, and you can go to our website, once again, tisf.com.au, for link to the voting form. And thanks for your support. This month's featured writer is Jane Routley. Writing both as Jane Routley and Rebecca Loxley, Jane is best known for her fantasy books, including the Mage Heart series, which picked up two consecutive Aurealis Awards for Best Fantasy Novel, and the standalone book The Three Sisters. But she's also published short stories in a number of anthologies and magazines spanning more years than either of us care to remember. Her story for TISF, Bats, shows what happens to a fading actress when reality and fiction collide, but nothing follows the script. Ugh, someone's calling. Cicadas are shrilling so loudly that my eardrums bang. White sunlight stings my eyeballs. Hello? A woman's voice. Footsteps on the wooden stairs. I wince away from the light. My head is like a lead weight and my tongue tastes rank. Oh, I'm lying on a sun lounge, and wouldn't you know it, I'm right under the only shaft of sun that has penetrated through the branches over the veranda. The glare has that hot midday feeling. Oh, from the crick in my neck, I must have been lying here since last night. My whole body aches, but my brain's still out for the count. Ooh, calls the voice. The habitual cry of the countrywoman. Footsteps creak around the veranda towards me. The house is a classic old Queenslander. Stilts, rusting galvanised tin roof, worn silver weatherboards and an all-round veranda. Hello, Miss Dargaville. Shit, my stage name. I fling out a heavy hand in a hungover prelude to running and hiding and knock over an empty bottle, which falls with an almighty thud and rolls and rolls and rolls until it hits the veranda rail. Ouch! Miss Dargaville? A brown-skinned face pokes shyly round the corner of the house. The rest of the body slides round after it. She's about my age, with crow's feet, salt-and-pepper hair and a round middle-aged body in a faded floral dress and flat sandals. Not much attempt to stop the passing of time. There but for the grace of God. The side table teeters as I grab shades to cram over my eyes. Hi, Sorry to bother you, she says. Her eyes are taking in everything. The dirty glasses, the vodka bottles, me prone on the sun lounge in my grubby silk nightdress. Ooh, this is yesterday's nighty. No, it's the day before's. Good God. Hope I don't pong too much. I'm Jenny Hammond, your neighbour from down the road. Just came in to see how you were settling in. I bought you the last of my mangoes. 
She holds out a white plastic bag full of big orange fruit. Mangoes, about 515 kilojoules each if they're large. Too high K to eat. Well, meaningless shuns off her, which means I'm trapped. I've never been much good at chasing people off. David always does, always did that for me. I hunch over my knees and mutter. Thanks. Kind of you. Put them here, will I, she says, leaning the plastic bag against the wall by the back door. Do you need anything? Do you know where to find everything? Would you like to come over for tea? Oh, God, a dinner invitation. I just can't. I'm right, thanks, I mutter. I'm not here long. Got lots to do. A slight crease appears between her eyebrows. Is she getting the message? Have I been horribly rude? Oh, God, will she think I'm being racist? The glowing smile wavers a little. Then she brings out the other thing she's carrying, offering it forward. A familiar theatre program with the elegant logo of the Bell Shakespeare Company on the top corner. I saw you in Romeo and Juliet, she says. I'm a big fan. I've followed your career ever since Home and Away. I was wondering if you could sign... Oh, th thank you so much. It's OK. I've bought a pen. After that, she leaves. What a thoroughly decent woman. People still like me. The warmth of that thought gives me the strength to make some effort at the day. To stagger off the sun lounge, swallow some antacid, have a heavy slow shower, change into a sundress and eat some crisp bread. That empty feeling is back all too soon. I knew it would be. It will always be there now. By dusk I'm back on the sun lounge, drink in hand, reliving that appalling moment in the restaurant four days ago when I discovered that David had given the little bitch the role of Mina Harker in his planned revival of Dracula. Couldn't you be a bit discreet, I hissed. I mean, fucking her was one thing, but giving her my lead? It was humiliating. He'd be offering her co-directorship in our new company soon. Darling, he said, I think you're too long in the tooth to pay Mina, don't you? The scheming bastard. That was why the nice restaurant... He thought I wouldn't make a public scene. More fool him. You'd think he'd have known better after ten years together. I threw a grilled sherb salad marinated in herb olive oil with a coriander salsa and a peppercorn juice all over him. And gave him both barrels, screaming, positively screaming, about how he'd had the best years of my life, how he'd used me up, how he had no business humiliating me like this. I shouldn't have yelled. I should have noted how well heartbroken tears had worked for the little bitch. But I couldn't be doing with such lily-liverish milk soppery, so I left him, though not before I'd seen the little bitch smirking on the latest cover of Australian Vogue. Was she going to take all my roles from me? I wasn't going to hang around to witness that. I cut and ran and came here to my grandparents' old farm deep in the wilds of tropical North Queensland. That bastard... That damned smiling villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Make a discarded first wife of me, will you, you fucker? Where's the mobile? Damn. I threw it off the veranda after the first drunken midnight call. Fuck, fuck, fuck. No matter. A little vodka clears us of this pain. The old house is overshadowed on one side by grey-green monster bottle-brush trees with huge springy tentacles. The harsh shrieking of the fruit-bats which nightly descend to eat and quarrel over the red blossoms echoes the clamour in my mind. 
When the bats have used their needle-sharp teeth and tongues on them, the flowers are left ruined, threadbare, the colour of dry meat, pure Australian Gothic, pure Alastargaville. I wake to blackness and rustling plastic. The veranda creaks. Someone's here. My eyes spring open before my brain has time to register anything. The light from inside the house shows a dark shape crouching at the back door. I shriek. It turns and springs up, hissing, a man's figure, a man's height. Go away, I scream, and the figure runs. It jumps up onto the veranda rail, spreads its wings and launches out into the darkness, its heavy body crashing away through the branches. I shout with all the anger invested in me as I lob an empty vodka bottle after it. Then I stagger into the house, locking the door behind me. I might be self-destructive, but I'm not stupid. For the first time since I've been here, I wake up in the bed. A gaggle of school kids is walking down the red dirt road in front of the house, their high, bright morning voices cutting through my skull like knives. Gulping down aspirin in the bedroom, I stare at my face in the broken mirror. I look every year of my forty despite the Botox. I broke the mirror on my first night here, and I knock another shard out now. How can my luck get any worse, fucking David? After a couple of coffees, my brain crawls round to thinking about what I saw the night before. Men? Wings? Men with bats' wings? Hallucinations are not a good sign. I give serious thought to cutting down on the vodka. The plastic bag with the mangoes is torn, and the fruit have rolled all over the back veranda. Someone has been here, but a common or garden prowler with bat wings? Police! He probably just swung off the veranda on a branch. Though the branches are very skinny. Would they hold a full-sized person? Behind the house is a tangle of bushland, though jungle might be a better word. Anything could be out there. I prowl around the house and find the door key so that I can lock myself in at night. In front of the house, the bleak yellow-green sea of sugarcane stretches out to a relentless blue sky, all colour washed out by the hot white daylight. My parents farmed these fields, but my mother and her sisters sold them off, and now the roofs of other houses ride the swaying sea of cane. Jenny Hammond must come from one of these. Perhaps the one with the big tree over it. What has possessed me to come to this godforsaken place? A place where it seems I'm now going to be murdered in my bed. <laughs> Just let someone try. But I should leave. Sober up enough to go somewhere nicer. But is there anywhere nice in this stale, flat and unprofitable world? It's back on the wagon for you, my girl. Hallucinations are no laughing matter. I have a vodka and tonic, hair of the dog, and a craft cheese crisp bread sandwich as well. Full fat cheese. Fuck the killer jewels. Who cares what I look like now? I bring the mangoes into the house, meaning to put them all home beautiful in a bowl in the kitchen. But there isn't a bowl, and as I poke around the house looking for one, I lose track of the mangoes. Someone, a tenant perhaps, possibly my mother, maybe even Gran, has left a big collection of pot boilers. Jacqueline Suzanne, Harold Robbins, Patricia Cornwall, all the old favourites. And a book on how to keep your man, which I so don't need just now. Looking at it makes me feel like a stretch of sand trying to hold on to the retreating waves as the tide goes out. It's all leaving me. David, my career, the theatre company we started together, my youth. 
Vodka in hand, I see something called Interview with a Vampire. A book about my dear, dear David, perhaps, and curl up on the couch. It's a good choice. Juicily purple and just absorbing enough. By dusk, I'm doing well. Several vodka and tonics behind the last night's tally. I turn on the lamp and keep reading. Moths bounce against the fly screen. The windows are just glass louvers and the nights are too warm to close them. The swaying of the trees under the assault of the bats makes the only breeze. Sweat trickles down between my breasts as I read about hot, still New Orleans nights, which sound just like hot, still Queensland ones, only more elegant, and about Anne Rice's beautiful vampires, immortal, forever young, bored with their tedious immortality. Lucky in greats. If I could be forever young, I'd still be playing a failure and modelling for Vogue and lunching with celebrities and David would still love me. And maybe this time I'd make him jealous by drinking champagne with some fresh young Hollywood brat packer all six-pack and curving biceps. I had my chances back in the day, but I wasted myself on true love and fidelity. Or maybe I'd just bite the bastard and suck his life out like he sucked out mine. Something heavy thuds onto the veranda and boards creak. I'm locked in the house, and I've left the veranda light on for a sense of safety. I lift my head and peer up over the edge of the couch. And there he is, his wiry lean body hunched over as he creeps barefoot along the boards outside the window. The fluorescent veranda light gleams dully on dark skin and hair. A wild man of the woods, his torso is bare. A chill tingles down into my belly. I smell a sharp muskiness as he creeps carefully past. Then he's out of my sight. The back door rattles, and a low hissing makes me reach for an empty bottle. But there's nothing more. No assault on the feeble lock, or the feebler glass. Just the pad, pad of feet, and the creaking of weight on timbers. A bead of sweat rolls down my cheek. I crane my neck further careful not to make a noise, and see that the man is still there, balanced easily on the top of the veranda rail, with his back to me, chin on his hands, hands resting on his feet, surveying the veranda up and down. He's naked, his cock dangling between his lean muscular legs. His face in profile is pointed like a fox's, or a bat's. He spreads out his arms, and just like that they are leathery wings, and he launches off the veranda rail and is suddenly smaller and flying, just another big bat flapping away to quarrel among the trees. Even though I shake my head and pinch myself and slap my own cheek, I know I'm awake and sober. I've just seen a man turn into a bat. It's like a light show has started up in my brain, a blinding, scintillating knowledge. I'm hardly aware of making and drinking another vodka and tonic. I leave the veranda light on for the next two nights and wait on the couch in the inside dark, and both nights he comes. Both times he patters across the veranda and tries the veranda door. He doesn't try to break in. Instead he crouches on the back rail, absently sniffing and nibbling at the hanging calistamon blossoms, as if waiting or watching, before suddenly, without a flash of light or a flourish of music or anything else Hollywood, he turns into a big, dark bat. I know what he is, but is he ageless and immortal? I long to ask him, just as the young reporter asked Louis in Anne Rice's book. But how can I? There's nothing civilised about this creature. Does he even speak English?
Perhaps this wild predator of the forest has been here forever, preying on kangaroos and aborigines, on early white settlers, on lonely drunks. Yet I'm certain I'm safe in the house. They can't enter without an invitation. Everyone knows that. As much as I feel anything through the vodka and tonic haze, I'm still too raw to get back on the wagon, I feel a certain weirdness. Not fear. I feel like a traveller who's just come out of customs. I know this country from books and films. I just never expected to travel here. Especially not in North Queensland. I dream of the black man-bat, sleeping and waking while reading of vampires in New Orleans and while lying hazed out on the sun lounge. David and the empty beach of age and loneliness are receding, and now I face a bright firmament filled with shooting stars. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, and isn't that a glory? On the third night he turns from his perch on the rail and sees me watching him. I'm paralysed. He stares for a long, long minute. It's as if a message has passed between us. He nods his head and is gone. Beautiful predator. What I'm contemplating scares me. I drink too much and find myself raving at David and what he's driven me to. It's evening, and I'm crawling round on the red dirt in front of the house, searching in the grass for my mobile when someone calls my name. A man is walking his children back from the school bus. I've seen them before. He's Aboriginal, but too round-faced and chubby to be my lean nighttime visitor. You all right, Miss Darkville, he says, helping me out of the grass, hand firm but not inappropriate on my arm. I try to stand straight and steady. I drop my phone, I explain with dignity. Kids, see if you can find the lady's phone, will you? The kids drop their school bags and dart away beneath the house. Only the youngest stays. She swings from hand to hand around the man's body as we talk. He introduces himself as Matt Hammond, Jenny Hammond's husband, and tells me about the kids. As he speaks, a broad line of bats begin to stream out of the jungle behind the house, passing above us and away across the darkening cane fields. The sun is setting red. A lot of bats here, I say, scanning the flock, looking for one that is bigger than the rest. Yeah, they come during mango season and stay for the bottle brush flowers. You've got to keep your windows closed or you'll get them in the house, dirty thieves. They don't bother you? Ha, we keep them away. Nets. He grins and winks, and black from the magic. I'm hungry, says the smallest child. Maybe she said it a couple of times already. The kids are back at the man's feet, tired of looking for my phone. It's dark now. We better be getting back. Mum will have tea on. You want to come, Alice? I excuse myself. As he goes, he calls back. Don't worry about the bats. Flower season's almost over. They'll be gone soon. His words electrify me. What was that line from that movie? Never grow old, never die? Also, fortune favours the bold. Also, it's now or never. That night I regard my face in a shard of mirror. Could I spend immortality in this face? I could be thinner. The vodka diet has taken a toll, so far only with a slight paunchiness around the belly. Can the undead lose weight? Can I risk waiting longer? He might leave when the bats leave, and then my chance is gone. I prepare myself as if for a red carpet opening. Arrayed in my best white silk nightdress, I work at my makeup and hair until they're perfect.
I open the back door, lock the screen door, and wait on a chair in the hallway, a glass of Russian courage in my hand. I wait more nervously than on the first night, afraid he won't come, afraid he will. I wait through several more drinks. Will it hurt? Will it work? I fall to dreaming of a glamorous vampire life, of blood-red lips and black velvet gowns by gaslight, of the vampire Lestat under neon light. The screen door rattles. The dark figure is silhouetted in the doorway. I jump up and he steps back. He's going to flee. Stop, I cry, leaping towards the door. Against the veranda rail he does stop. I stand at the door and beckon him, calling him back. Slowly he straightens and comes, padding back over the boards, musky smell enveloping me as he closes in. His glance is sidelong, his face foxy. I wish I had a script. I'm an actress, not a playwright, damn it. I don't know what words to use. I reach out my hand to touch the screen, and haltingly he places his dark hand against it. His warmed touch. I will let you in, I say. His eyes widen, and he tilts his head, as if waiting for more. He must understand me. But only if you make me like you, I say. Will you make me like you? He squints at me, as if questioning, his face foxier than ever. He reaches down and rattles the door handle. Only if you make me like you, I say. He looks at our hands pressed against each other on the screen door. Do we have a deal? A deal? He regards me sideways out of those dark alien eyes. At last he gives a measured nod. I open the screen door, my slippery drunken hands struggling with the snib. I stand ready, in a hurry to meet my fate. Arms outstretched, eyes squeezed shut. Please don't let it hurt too much. Please don't let it hurt. Let's get this over with. The man steps into the house, pushes me aside and pads away into the dark hall. Without a backward glance, he pushes me aside. Pushes me aside as if I was something in the way, as if I was rubbish, as if he had no interest in what I have to offer. I hear hands scrabbling at the hall table. I hear my purse hit the floor, and then a couple of mangoes come rolling towards me. I've been rejected. Again. This is the last straw. Hot red anger screams into my veins. My fingers turn to claws. I launch myself like an avenging angel at that lean, dark shape and seize him. Damn it, you fucker, don't do this to me. Fingers grip skin, the stench of musk and sweat. In the darkness, flailing arms are everywhere. I hang on tight, feet digging into the boards, dragging after him as he shrieks and breaks for the open door. I cling on, down the hall and through the doorway, even as I feel limbs shrink away from me and leather wings slapping wildly in my face. No, you fucker! Bite me! Bite me, damn you! Even as white-hot teeth tear into my wrists and hands, I cling on and on, until I trip over the mangoes and my hand slips. Then he's away, his heavy body speeding like a ball, out and over the veranda rail, a big bat flying into the darkness. My carefully manicured hands are ripped to ribbons, covered in blood, but I've got what I wanted. I don't need him any more. I bind myself up with silk torn from the bottom of my nightdress, crawl back onto the couch, and wait for the change. God, those bites hurt. All the finest nectars of the Russian steppes couldn't sweeten the throbbing. The oldest Hammond child finds me the following day. 
Walking home from school, he hears my mobile phone ringing in the grass beneath the house and brings it up to me. The first thing I know of it is the squeak that wakes me up. I see a boy standing in the doorway. No, I cry, afraid for him. He's only a child and I'm turning into a monster. It feels like hell, which is what it should feel like, I guess. I'm relieved when the child runs away. I lie there wondering if the daylight outside will hurt me, and an eye blink later, the house seems full of Hammond parents, shaking me and asking questions and bandaging and pulling me around. It's nothing, I protest, and no, not into the sun. They bundle me into a car and drive me into Townsville Hospital, where doctors wash and stitch and bandage me and shoot me up against tetanus and something called lysivirus, which turns out is rabies, and put me on a watch for Hendra virus and give me something to help with the DTs. I don't turn into a vampire, not once, not even a bit. Nor does David rush to my side, the bastard. My brother comes instead, oh joyful day. Though I have to admit, he is useful and almost kind. A couple of days later, when everything is white and clear and clean, Lyndall Hobbs rings again. That had been her on the phone when the Hammond boy found it. She probably saved my life. Uncharacteristic for an agent. You need to work, she says. I want you to audition for this new thing called Hoochie Coochie. I know you can sing and dance. I've seen those old episodes of Young Talent Time and don't give me that bullshit about being a serious actress. That was always David's thing. Now you've ditched him, we can get you some real money. My brother and Jenny Hammond pick up and clean the house. Hell of a mess, says my brother. Jenny was very apologetic. Seems they didn't realise the back door was open and the fruit bats got in and got at the mangoes and spread them everywhere. I sent her some flowers and the biggest box of chocolates I could get. You owe me seventy bucks. Mangoes, I think. Jenny Hammond's mangoes rotting peacefully away on the hallway table. Suddenly, everything becomes horribly, humiliatingly, embarrassingly clear. He was after the mangoes all the time. Because fruit bats, of course, like to eat fruit, not blood. My very soul curls at the thought of my misunderstanding. I should go back and thank the Hammonds in person, but I just can't face it. I simply send a signed picture and flee back to Melbourne. Of course, I have sent them a Christmas card every Christmas since. I hope that goes some way towards paying my dues. Hoochie Coochie, unlikely as it sounded at first, was a great success, and I'm now playing in the London West End. David's revival of Dracula sank with a deeply gratifying lake of trace, and the theatre company fell apart in a mess of divorce and adultery. Such a promiscuous little bitch. That kind of thing makes it so much easier to get over a broken heart. So what did I actually see on that Queensland veranda? I've surfed the web since, looking for fruit bat myths. Aboriginal law is full of people who change into animals and animals who change into people, but none of them drink blood. The only fruit bat story I can find concerns Chinimin, the fruit bat, who lusted after the green parrot women and challenged the rainbow serpent, and whose nose fell off when he hung upside down. He sounds more like a trickster spirit than a dark prince of evil. Vampires of the classical blood-sucking variety don't seem to exist in Aboriginal myths. Bloodsuckers are a story bought by white settlers. Appropriate when you think about it.
Terra incognita This month's review is Transformation Space by Marianne de Piers. Transformation Space is the fourth and final instalment of Marianne de Piers' Sentience of Orion series, the galaxy-spanning tale of Mira Fedor, symbiont ship pilot, who fled her embattled planet to get some help after an alien invasion. After a relatively slow start in book one, the series really took off in the second and third instalments, with plenty of action and a large cast of characters, all interacting or going off on their own adventures to intersect again, often surprisingly, down the track. The writing in the Sentient series has always been assured and controlled. Marianne's prose has a clarity that evokes character setting and action in an economic manner that never slows the pace, and that style is evident in Transformation Space. But I found myself in two minds about this final instalment. While the characters of Transformation Space were as engaging as ever, their situations, which had been set up over the preceding volumes, seemed to lose momentum in this book. It felt as if they'd reached the place they needed to be on the board and were waiting for the end game to begin. Certainly a couple of subplots revolving around the disappearance of the godlike soul entity and the destruction of some Orion planets by the Extropians provided a diversion while we waited along with the characters for that end game to commence. But much of that action happened off camera, so wasn't as effective as it might have been. Also, the exciting set pieces that prevailed in book two and three were not as prevalent in transformation space. Perhaps that was why the plot coincidences, which have played a large part in the series, mainly due to the godlike manipulations of the soul entity, just seemed a little too convenient in this final volume. My other disappointment came from the fact that, when the end game did come, the answers to the conundrum of the soul entity's actions, the extropian threat, and the future of the Orion species was dealt with rather conveniently and completely in the space of a few pages, and the book itself ended very abruptly. Transformation Space is a good book in its own right. It's just not as good as I wanted the final instalment of the Sentience of Orion series to be. Three stars. Transformation Space is published in Australia by Orbit. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2011. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.